Thank you, thank you. Let's pray. Father, uh, we recognize you're here with us. Oh, you're so good. Father, you're so, so good to us. We love being your kids. We like it, Lord. We like that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our dad. <sighs> we just submit to that truth. We enjoy it. Father, come and teach us. Come, Holy Spirit, and reveal your son to us. Uh, Lord, as we learned uh, a couple days ago, Lord, we uh, sin has caused us to really uh, be obsessed with ourselves. And we need your grace this morning to repent. We need your grace to, to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put them on you. Lord, author faith again. Uh, this morning, God, a fresh faith. Lord, I pray that anyone who's been wrestling and struggling uh, with, with the truth and with who you are and what you've promised, God, I pray right now, breath of God, breath of God, Holy Spirit, come. Fan into flame faith in our hearts. I pray for it, Lord. We ask you, God, that you would strengthen our faith. If that's been you, if you've been wrestling, if you've like, like we've been, I've been preaching and teaching and you just feel like, this insurmountable block of being able to just like exhale and go, yes, I believe. I just pray right now that, that you would just say, God, author faith. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so we ask you, Lord, right now, you are the wonderful author. Come and author fresh, strong faith this morning in who you are. Lord, where we have, where we have, um, made ourselves big and you small. Lord, help us. That's not our desire. We want you, Lord. Jesus, we need you. We need you in our midst. We want the fullness of what you paid for in our lives. We want the fullness, God. We want the fullness. We want to grow up in every way into you, Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. Just know I'm aware that what we talked about yesterday may feel like some things that you've believed were being torn down, and there's a measure of grief associated with that, um, of, of like of wrestling. And so I don't want to hijack your process. Um, again, like I've said before, we have to test everything in the Word of God. Amen. Um, and so I encourage you, the wrestle is good. The tension is not bad. Anyone who's done the RTC, the working out, knows that when, you're, when there's tension, there's got to be pressure applied to get stronger. Amen? And so God is strengthening our faith um, in, as we discuss the majesty and the magnitude of the gospel and the promises, it should cause us a little bit of, like, disruption. Amen? Doesn't it make sense that the goodness of God would blow our minds and make us be like, I don't get it? If we could understand everything immediately of God, like, that's, that's very human. But we're dealing with God here. We're dealing with the, the one who created everything. And so I just want you guys to give yourselves a lot of grace as you wrestle. Amen? All right. Uh, go to John 1. John 1. I'm going to recap just a little bit. Um, We're going to look at Jesus as high priest today. Jesus as our high priest. 
This is a wonderful revelation of Jesus that um, I don't believe has been preached enough. Um, the revelation of Jesus as high priest is as significant and important as the revelation of Jesus as the Lamb of God. It's, it's as core and central to the gospel as Jesus' work on the cross. And I would, I would say also Jesus' return as bridegroom, judge, and king is also part of the entire gospel narrative. And so as we've talked, the gospel is past, present, and future. In that way, we can't get away from it. We can't get, get away from walking by grace through faith because it's past, present, and future. So John the Baptist, so when God wanted to introduce his son to the world, he you know, we all have marketing teams. If you Raise your hand if you're in the marketing team for, for YWAM here. You're like the media marketing team. Where, anyone here? Media here, okay? Yeah, amen. They're there in the back. What's up, Esther? Okay, so listen. God had a marketing team plan in heaven. He's like, hey, we want to introduce the sun to the world. What are we going to do? Like, should we do billboards? Um, should we do a, you know, media campaign? What do you think? And, you know, I don't know how this marketing meeting went down, but someone said, hey, why don't we send a hairy guy into the wilderness who eats locusts and wild honey, and he'll just start preaching in the middle of nowhere in the spirit and the power of Elijah. How about that? And God's like, I like that. We're going with that. And so the original Baptist, where are my Baptists at? Let's go Baptists in the house. Give it up for the Baptists. I love my Baptist brothers and sisters. Listen, you have wonderful roots. John the Baptist was the OG Baptist. Come on now. This is biblical. His name was John the Baptist. <laughs> the baptizer. <laughs> have you been baptized? <laughs> so, so John, this is crazy. 400 years, it's been quiet, no revelation from God, and all of a sudden, this man comes out into the wilderness, and he starts preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, commanding people to be baptized in water. Now listen, we read that scripture as Gentiles. We're like, oh yeah, that makes sense, Jews being baptized, sins, sins being forgiven with baptism. Do you understand that to a Jew, the only way forgiveness of sins was possible was through blood. Something had to die for there to be forgiveness. So here comes a man, wild in the wilderness, and he's going, you can have your sins forgiven if I dunk you in this water. So what's the point? The Bible says that John came to prepare the way for Jesus. So John the Baptist, his life in ministry was a billboard. It was a preparatory work to point to God's son. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, John makes a pronouncement of Jesus that is very, very significant, and it highlights these three aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. So we want to pay attention. If this is heaven's billboard saying, hey, this is God's son, we want to listen to what he says. Number one, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's revelation number one. We've been talking about it all week. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And then he gives you two things that the Lamb of God's going to do. He, the Lamb, will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And he will baptize you in fire. Now you say, what does that mean? Well, if you follow the narrative, after Jesus died on the cross, buried, rose again on the third day, 40 days later, he's appearing to his disciples saying, ta-da, I'm alive. On the 40th day, he's on the Mount of Olives. Gravity stops working on Jesus. This is awesome. Beam me up. Jesus starts floating into the sky. 10 days later, there's 10 days in between the 40th day, Ascension Day, 10 days later, so 50 days after he's resurrected, Pentecost happens, Acts chapter 2, and Jesus, the great high priest, baptizes 120 people into the Holy Spirit. This is awesome. When John baptized people, they got wet. When Jesus baptizes you, you get God. This is the sum total of Christian ministry. You're like, what is Christian ministry? Receive God, give God. Are you guys awake? It's simple, but it's profound. If you don't have God, you can't be a Christian minister. That's what we have to give. That is our ministry. We give God. Hello? <laughs> this, this is it. If you don't have God to give, you don't have anything to give. Peter and John walk up to the temple, to the gate called Beautiful, after this experience, and there's a crippled man. And the crippled man says, hey, they, they, he's asking for money. And they look at him, listen to this. This should convict us and awaken us and make us sober and hungry at the same time. No shame, no condemnation. He says, look, and, they, and they, they look at him, they go, look at us. And it says he was expecting to receive something from them. And they said, silver and gold have I none. I don't have any money. You're asking for money, I don't have any money. But listen to what they say. What I do have. Peter and John didn't go, oh God, would you please do something for this man? That's not what the Bible says. They did not pray to God and say, oh God, would you please heal this crippled man? Do you know what they said? They said, what I do have, I give to you. This means they knew they had something for the crippled man. They knew they had something to give to the crippled man. And they said, in the name of Jesus, because what they had was because of Jesus. They knew that what they had wasn't some, of their, some piety in themselves. Some, they were hyper-spiritual. They received it from God. The authority to heal the sick and cast out devils is received, friends. It's received. You don't earn and, 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 and flex your way into the authority to heal the sick and cast out devils. You receive it by faith. This is Matthew chapter 10. He tells them, freely you have received. The Bible says he gave them authority to cast out devils and to heal the sick. He gave it to them. Oh, that's awesome. That's so nice. So what I have, I give to you. Rise up and walk. And the crippled guy walked. They had something of God. 
This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, this is really important to know, because there's a lot of weirdness surrounding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. People are like, well, is it about tongues? Is it? You may speak in tongues. In fact, you probably will. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not about tongues. It's about power. It's about power. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about power. Now, who does the baptizing in the Holy Spirit? Who does it? Jesus. So John was baptizing people in water, but Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. In, in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is called the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. Did you know that? That the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some, uh, it's not some like uh, side blessing of Christianity. It is so foundational in core. You receiving power from on high is as certain of a promise as you being born again and having your sins forgiven. It's central, friends. But the reason why we don't think that way is because there's been a lot of weirdness and we haven't continued to preach Jesus. Do you remember when I talked about the first day when Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished? Do you remember how I said he did not say, I am finished? See, we've preached the gospel and well, well, the it is finished is the last part of Jesus' life and ministry. It's not. Because he is now at the right hand of God making intercession for you and I, and he's still baptizing people in the Holy Spirit. And he's a high priest forever on our behalf. And this is so profound and so needed. And then if you're wondering about the baptism with fire, I, this is my... This is my theological stance on it. There's different people that have different thoughts, and I'm, I don't want to argue. Some people, I feel like, have you heard, like, well, I want the baptism of fire. Have you ever heard that? Like, there's the baptism of the Spirit, and then almost like the baptism of fire is like the level up of the baptism of the Spirit. Have you all heard that? Yes or no? I, I maybe, I don't know. I know, that the, I know that when he comes back, he's going to baptize the earth in fire says that in Corinthians, that the earth will be, will be cleansed. It will be baptized in fire. And so I actually believe that when John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's referencing this triune revelation of Jesus, Lamb, High Priest, and Bridegroom, from the get-go saying these three aspects of Jesus' life and ministry are paramount to you living the Christian faith. So the baptism of fire, yes, I believe you can welcome the judgments of God on your life early. If you're in Christ and you're in the new covenant, it's a wonderful, kind of scary prayer. But God, I welcome your judgments in my life. Because if you're under the blood, God's judgment usually goes against your enemies. And we don't want to be afraid of his judgments because they're wonderful, they're beautiful. And we can pray for that. And there's an element of the fear of the Lord attached to that that is really holy. And, and hopefully we'll touch on that tomorrow. But I want, I want us to see and I want us to continue this progression of how we mature in the Christian faith. So do you guys see that with John? Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Again, we're going we're gonna to just look, keep building on yesterday. 
Ephesians 4. So John the Baptist gives us these three descriptions of Jesus. And then here in Ephesians 4, we'll start in verse uh, 11. Uh, We're going to look at a real familiar passage that I think is important to us. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So this is the fivefold leadership of the church that were given as gifts. This fivefold leadership are gifts to the body. So if you are called by God into a fivefold leadership role, that is not necessarily um, the only expression of full-time ministry. The purpose of the fivefold is to serve the church. This is so important. It's not like, oh, those fivefold guys, they're on the front lines doing all of the work of the kingdom. No, they're actually, they're actually at home base, and their job is to serve the body of Christ in a couple of things. Number one, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the primary role of fivefold leadership is someone with a microphone teaching, preaching, laboring, is to equip you to do the works of ministry. It's not like, oh, once I get here, I'll be doing in ministry. And you guys know this. You guys are here. You're in YWAM. Like, you know, like, I'm signing up to be on the front lines. And so that's beautiful. But but keep going. Um, For building up the body of Christ, look at this. So the fivefold leadership's job isn't complete until we all, say we all. My heart is that no one's left behind this week. You see me reiterating things again and again and again. Why? Because I don't want to leave anyone behind. I'm not preaching this to offend anyone. I'm not preaching to, to put a wall between anyone. I'm actually, I'm laboring. I feel love in my heart for you. And I want, I want us all, by some measure, by some grace, that this week, you guys leave this week and you're like, wow, I feel like I've been strengthened. I feel like I've been built up. I feel like I look more like Jesus. Or I have permission and faith to walk more like Jesus than I ever have in my life. That would be my desire. At the end of this week, you actually have the faith that you can walk like Christ in the earth in thought, in deed, and in your emotions. That would be my intended, if you're like, what is it that you want? It's that you believe that and that you see that biblically and that God's not threatened or offended by that, that he's actually calling you into it. So he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The unity of the faith. The faith is a perspective and a way of life that that comes to us that we would all be unified under because of Jesus is a lamb, a high priest, and a bridegroom. That's the unity of the faith. Like, let me say it this way. Are we all in this room unified about how someone is born again? Do we believe that the only way to be born again is to put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Raise your hand. That's the only way. Okay. Now, do we believe that the only way to find freedom from sin forever (laughs) is to be crucified, buried, and resurrected with Jesus? Okay, not as many hands. So we're not completely unified in the faith regarding the lamb. 
Do you see that? Now, sanctification, how is it that I go from where I am today to a mature Christian? And I would submit to you that it's having faith in Jesus, the great high priest. There's only one way. Just like there's only one way to be born again, I'm submitting to you, based on the scriptures, there's only one way to be sanctified and grow up in maturity. But right now, the church presents a number of ways for us to be sanctified and grow up. So what happens is it looks like this. Someone has a testimony like, well, I went to a conference, and I got blasted, and then I read this book, and then this, and they shared about four things that they did to find freedom. And what we do is we, we mistakenly say, wow, then I need to go to that conference. I need to read that book. The reason they got freedom is because they encountered Jesus. You can encounter Jesus through a book, through a class, but there's only one way to grow up into maturity. And it's through the man, Jesus Christ. But for many of us, we haven't known how to tap into that grace because the, the, the saving grace of God was only presented to us as something past. So here's what happens. You get born again, you feel so clean, you still feel so forgiven, and then all of a sudden, you still find yourself in a sin habit. And now you don't know what to do because you're like, I'm still in a sin habit, and I, and I felt so good, I felt so clean, but now I feel defiled. And because we don't have a high priest, we don't have a conscience, most 95 plus percent believers that I meet do not have any value or grid or consciousness of Jesus Christ, their personal great high priest in heaven who appears in the presence of God right now on their behalf, advocating for them in their weakness, helping them if they sin, most believers don't. And so what happens is because you don't have a revelation of Jesus as high priest, you, you then try to, to appease your defiled conscience. See, if you sin as a believer, your conscience is tempted to be defiled. What does that mean? When you get born again, God takes his finger. I want you to know this. This is biblical. You can ask me about this later. Again, anything you have questions, I'm trying to point this to the Bible, and I'm, I'm referencing scriptures in my preaching that, that I don't have time to open and preach. Does that make sense? God takes his finger like he did in the Old Testament, and he wrote the law of the covenant on, on stone. Do you all remember that with Moses? He took his finger, and he wrote the law on stone. The Bible teaches in Hebrews that now, as a brand new believer, when you crucify with Christ, get buried with him, resurrected, he takes his finger, and he takes it on your heart, and he takes his laws, which is his righteousness, which is the right way to live, and he inscribes it on your heart and on your mind. This means every born-again believer is hardwired for righteousness. Oh, I'm going to throw this pulpit across this room. You now have God's software for righteousness. Thinking and heart. What does that mean? This means that if, everyone say if. And I, I have to show you this because we're, we're going we're gonna to go here because... Most of us think it's when we sin. The Bible doesn't teach when we sin. In 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, he says, My little children, 
I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if, I like that. If, say if. If does not say when. See, when would mean I'm going to sin. When I sin means it's a promise. It's a certainty. The Bible says if. Interesting. Why would the Bible say if? Why would John write to us so that you may not sin if we were going to sin? He says if. you got to see it. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. An advocate, that's the high priest, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. For the years that I struggled with pornography, I believed every time I stumbled, the feeling was God was mad at me. The feeling was God was ashamed at me. I cared so much about walking in righteousness that it produced such a level of guilt, shame, and condemnation. Why? Because I cared. Sinners don't care. If you're a sinner and you sin, you don't care. Why? Because you're, you're, that's, that's what you are. <laughs> the fact that you care so much, if, if you guys stumble and fall, and you feel that feeling of like, oh, I can't believe I did that, it's a testimony of how clean you are. If you weren't clean, you wouldn't care. It's a testimony that the law's been written on your heart that you don't need someone to tell you, hey, that was wrong. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's inside of you saying, hey, ooh. But if you don't know how the new covenant works, you'll take that, ah, ooh, and you'll feel as though God is distancing himself from you, pulling back from you, frustrated with you. But the Bible actually teaches if you, as a believer, sin, Jesus Christ, the great high priest, he presents himself to you. He says, he says, hey, you know what you need right now? You need an advocate. You need a helper. You need someone who will pray for you. Do you know what he does? I believe he puts his arm around you. And he comes close to you. If you sin, if you stumble, if you do the thing, that you, the, the repeated thing that you hate, that you know you don't want, he comes to you. He says, hey, I'm going to be your helper. And I'm not a sleazy helper. I'm a righteous helper. And, and, and I believe there's, the, there's a fellowship if you could tap into Jesus' prayers for you in those low moments, it would change your life. I remember, I remember the vision the Lord gave me when this first hit my heart. I saw this picture of Jesus, and he came, and he put his arm around me. Literally, the next moment, after I had, I had looked at pornography, I'd screwed up, and I felt, I felt the Lord draw close to me. And he put his arm around me, and I felt so, you got to understand, I'm not, I, I knew, I hated it. It tore me up inside. I, I felt powerless. I was, there was a stronghold in my life that I couldn't save myself from. I needed God. I needed salvation. I needed deliverance. But because I didn't, my gospel was so small, I didn't know he would save me. I didn't have the faith he would save me. I was actually told, man, you know what? You're going to struggle with that your whole life. Someone told me that. Someone in, in ministry told me, you're going to struggle with lust and addiction your whole life. What do you think happened every time I was tempted? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm just here struggling, like he said. 
<laughs> until God set me free. Now I was like, wait a minute, hold up, wait a minute. <laughs> so he came and he said, Father, he said, this, this is your son. Do you remember, Father, when Peter put his faith in you and I washed him in my blood? Father, he, look how broken he is. Look how deeply saddened he is, Lord. Lord, I am not going to leave his side until he's free. Lord, 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 release your forgiveness over Peter. Lord, I'm reminding you of my blood that I shed for this sin. This is Jesus the intercessor. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 8 that he has obtained a ministry. Oh my goodness. Please, please friends, do not get into ministry without knowing and understanding Jesus is first in full-time ministry before you. If you do not understand Jesus' full-time ministry as high priest, I promise you, you will burn out. I promise you. My ministry is easy because the momentum rests upon my great high priest. <laughs> it does. And what I love about Jesus the high priest is that I don't have, to, like, as I'm growing up and maturing into his likeness, guess what? We have moments of weakness. We have moments where we need, we need help. We are needy people. In my preaching this, of, of that you can grow up and mature into Christ-likeness, know this. He knows our frame. He knows the places of weakness. And he says, you can actually come to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in your time of need. But why don't we find it? Because our consciences get defiled. And we don't have a faith that's strong enough to come to God in our weakness, in our sin, in our brokenness to actually find freedom. Now, there's a pattern I see with many of us, and I want to speak to it in this vein. Because, and there's a, there's a, it's a pattern that I've seen being, being a pastor, being a leader for, for 13 plus years now. I see people treating the blood of Jesus like the blood of a bull or a goat. What do I mean? Means that, that if you stumble and fall, you're like, oh, I just need the blood again. I just need the blood again. And there's no faith or expectation that the blood of Jesus will actually change you from the inside out. Did you know that, that if all the blood is doing is just forgiving you of the thing you did, then, a, then the blood of a bull or goat could do that. That's what the blood of bulls and goats did, is it forgave them for what they did. But the Bible says, and why John's pro proclamation is so profound, is he doesn't say, behold the Lamb of God, whose blood just forgives the outward sins of the world. He says, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' blood is so far superior this is why it's the blood of the new covenant. Now we have a blood that can actually purify us from the inside out. So there's the bad things we do, but now there's the inside that made us do the bad things. That's what the blood touches. The 
Do you know who teaches us this? The high priest. Go to Hebrews. And look at a few of the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. This book is really deep. Again, I wish we had time uh, to fully walk through it. Um, if I could, I would just read probably five chapters to you and just take it line by line, but um, time doesn't allow us to do that. Um, Hebrews 7, 11 um, starts by saying, now if perfection, say perfection, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. When I say the Levitical priesthood, raise your hand if you have no idea what that is. Okay. So the Levitical priesthood uh, came, so, so Jacob who became Israel, had 12 sons, okay? One of their sons, one of Jacob's, who became Israel, Jacob wrestled with God, he became Israel, and Israel, the name, the country Israel comes because there was a real guy named Israel. We know that? The nation today that's in war, it's named Israel after Jacob, who became Israel, who had 12 sons. And those 12 sons became 12 tribes of Israel. That's where you hear that language. One of the sons was named Levi, and Levi, every tribe kind of had like an identity and an assignment given by God to fulfill the purposes of God. Well, the Levites were assigned by God to oversee all of the tabernacle, which was the tent that, that basically was set up in the wilderness when Israel came out, and it was where and how they worshiped God. So the interesting thing about the, the tabernacle or the tent, number one, it was a picture of Jesus. It was a shadow of Jesus to come, which is so cool. It's an amazing study if you've never done that. Um, but it's important to know, if you were from the tribe of Benjamin, you couldn't just rock up and serve in the tabernacle. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. So the, Le the Levitical priesthood speaks of the leadership of the tabernacle that only God ordained those guys to handle the stuff in the tabernacle. Make sense? What's really interesting about this is that God, God wanted to be worshipped and approached in a very specific way. So if you study the tabernacle at the very beginning, when you walk in, there was an outer court and an inner court, okay? In the outer court, when you'd walk in, there was this, um, like a big grill. Y'all know grills? Like... It was a big giant grill with fire, and that's where they would kill the blood of an animal, and they would, they would roast this thing on the animal. It was a sin offering. It was an offering unto the Lord. So you start with blood, and then if you go a little further in the outer court, there was a basin, a bronze basin of water that then the priest would wash. So you have blood, then you have water, okay? And the Levites were responsible for doing all of these ordinances, Okay, and those Levites were priests on behalf of the whole nation. So when the nation would screw up and do something super wrong, the priest would then stand in the gap on their behalf and they would go, God, and they would make intercession through 
the, the blood through the water, and then if you went into the, 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 the inner court, it was a closed off space. And you had, you had all kinds of things in there. And Hebrews talks about this. You had bread, you had candles, which are incense. You had the table, which was acacia overlaid with gold. And, and then you had this giant veil, this curtain that was super thick, really, really thick curtain. And beyond that curtain, so you had the, the inner place, and then beyond that curtain was the most holy place, and behind that was the Ark of the Covenant. And there was no light in there, but the covenant, the, the, the Ark was glowing, and it was the light. <laughs> wow. So the Levitical priesthood once a year would go behind the curtain. And he would make atonement for the sins of people. That's the day of atonement. Okay? So on that day, all the people would have this collective sigh of, oh, I feel good. We've been atoned for. Okay? But what would happen the next day? And we did it again. We got to wait a year. We got to wait a year to feel this level of peace and shalom with God again because now we've broken the commandments because the law, which was the ten, the ten Commandments and then all the other things, every time an Israelite would break that, their conscience would be pricked and defiled and they would feel unrighteous before God. Do you know the torment that this caused? <clears throat> so look at this. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. What an interesting phrase. Why are you talking about perfection? Who's, you're talking that, that perfection is attainable? He says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under that priesthood the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest, say another priest, to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron, who was a Levite. So Aaron was a Levite. For when there is a change in priesthood, watch this, so important, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. What does that mean? So as soon as you would remove one priest and you're going to take another priest, the, the law, uh, another way of saying the law, because I think we hear the law and we just tune out. We're like, what do you mean the law? Like break the law? No, the law was the constraints that governed how people related to God. So God said, hey, if you want to relate to me, do these things and we'll be good. You guys with me? So he's saying if there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the way that we now relate to God. If you don't know the law that governs the new covenant, you will live under an old, a Gentile, a weird, perverted version of a Gentile Old Testament law thinking with God. That thinking looks like, I sin, oh my gosh, I, God's so mad at me. That's, that's, an, that's an old covenant way of thinking. And that's why I was saying, if that's what your way of thinking, then you begin to treat the blood of Jesus like the blood of a bull or a goat. And you're like, oh, Lord, I need you to forgive me again. And there's no expectation that you can actually be free. And unintentionally, we're dishonoring the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
So there's a change in the law. For the one, listen to this, the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe. I know we are so deep in the word right now. And I just, I'm just assuming we want to go there together. I'm making that assumption. I don't know. I like being here. Are y'all okay being here? Can, if y'all get your word and just look at it, it helps to look at it. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, look at this, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. I want to break something. It makes me so happy. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. You know what the name Judah means? Praise. So Jesus comes from, from the line of Judah, which means praise. But the only line that could serve in the altar was the tribe of Levi. So he's saying, hold up, there's a change in tribe, in priesthood. So he says, this becomes, verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. What's he saying? He didn't become a priest because he was from Levi. So, well then, how does Jesus become a priest? By the power of an indestructible life. Verse 18, he says, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment. What's the commandment? The Levitical system. The, you have to do all this to get right with God. He's saying that commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, this is so important to, to, that we take our time here. We're not just throwing, remember what I said on the other day? We're not throwing away the Old Testament. Remember that? This is so important. So why was that old system weak and useless? <laughs> the law, meaning the Levitical law of this is how you worship God, it says made nothing perfect. So on that basis, it was weak and useless. There was a glory, make no mistake, there was a glory in the Old Covenant. The Bible talks about it. There was a glory in it. The ministry of condemnation came with glory, so much so that Moses shined like a light bulb when he came down. <sighs> but the ministry of righteousness must far surpass it in glory. And that is the ministry you and I belong to that we confess. When you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, you're saying, I belong to a new covenant with a greater glory than the covenant that made a man's face on earth shine like a light so bright that he had to veil his face in the presence of people. The difference between Moses' face shining like a light when he went up the mountain was that he shined from the outside. When Jesus in John 17 went up the mountain and he was transfigured, he shined from the inside. 
His light came from within. Moses's came from without. How much more, sons and daughters of God, as we are transformed into his image, shall our very countenance display and manifest the beauty of God? How would you like to be able to walk into a coffee shop? True story. Years ago, I was going into a Starbucks, and I told God, I said, God, I said, I know. I said, I, you know, how many of you know, like, you feel like you should share the gospel, but you don't feel like it? I'm the only one that's, thank you, 16 of you honest with me. So I, I like to be honest with God. I said, God, I don't actually feel any love towards these people in this Starbucks. I'm looking at Frenchie. He's like, oh, brother, I'll pray for you. So I said, but I wanted to be real with God. I said, God, but you love them, don't you? You see me taking my eyes off of me? I'm like, I don't have it in me, but you do, right? And I, and I saw the smile of God. And he goes, I love them. I was in my flesh, I needed coffee. But in a moment, and I turned my heart in prayer, and he says, I love them. And he's smiling with the craziest, like, father smile. He's like, to the people that I hadn't yet seen in the Starbucks. So I'm looking at God in, my, in the eyes of my heart, I'm looking at my dad smile at these people in Starbucks. And so I rock up, and I'm like, I'm cheesing. I'm like, I'm like, wow. I walk in, my countenance, the barista lady, she turns around to take my order, and I'm just sitting there <laughs> looking at her, and she goes, whoa. She goes, you have some good vibes coming off of you. <laughs> Evangelism 101. I'm so serious. When you can look at people the way God looks at them, they'll encounter the Spirit of God. This is why if you're a grumpy Christian, you should not share the gospel. Jesus loves you. Really? Does he love you? Because maybe, I don't know. I'm serious. You cannot fake countenance. You can't fake your countenance. I can tell what you're looking at by what your face looks like. It's not, I'm not looking for, some, I'm not looking for something, but I can tell what, you can tell what somebody's looking at based on their countenance. When someone sees something beautiful, their face lights up. You can't look at Jesus and not be like, wow. Oh, yeah, you're Jesus. You, you really love people. I'm so serious. This is the eyes of heart. Most of us, though, have never been given permission to stop looking at us. I'm not that impressed with me. I'm not impressed with me at all. I'm not, I'm not I'm the least bit impressed with me. I don't. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4. He goes, guys, it's a small thing if you judge me or any human court judges me. Paul says this. He goes, I don't care what you think about me. He goes, I don't even judge myself. Paul says this. He goes, but I am not thereby acquitted. Meaning, the fact that I don't judge myself doesn't mean I'm the judge of myself. He says, I'm reserving all of that judgment for the day, on that day when he comes back to disclose the secrets of the heart. But here's what I'm not doing. I'm not living, nitpicking my life and going, okay, God, what am I doing? How am I doing? Da, da, da. No, no, no. I'm just going to look at you. And I trust you. If there's areas in my life that need to change, need to repent, you're a good dad, you'll tell me. But I don't need to be the judge of me anymore. Why? Because I got the law of God written on my heart. I trust the work of the new covenant. I trust what he's done in my heart. And I smiled at this girl. I said, you know what that is? She goes, what? I go, it's the love of God. He loves you. 
she starts tearing up immediately. Presence of God hits her. Through a look, through a, through a countenance, that's the ministry of righteousness. She saw a glimpse through this goofy-looking jar of clay. She saw a glimpse. Somehow God looked at her through my face and said, I love you. And she felt it. She felt it. It's amazing. Was I in Hebrews? <laughs> Seven. Yeah. Eleven. No, we passed eleven. My brother was preaching to us here. The law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. All of this that I'm teaching is about your connection to God, how we draw near. Do you guys see them speaking of perfect? I want to speak to this. He's not talking about your behavior. The new covenant doesn't instantly make your behavior perfect. When you get born again, you don't all of a sudden start walking perfectly. So we have to then understand what perfection is he talking about. If the new covenant introduces perfection, what kind of perfection is it? I would describe it this way. One of, the, one of the girls came up to me yesterday and was asking a question. And I said, you know, I said, think about it this way. She was struggling with the dynamic of like, like if, if we're new and we're, and we're like God or we get born of God, how, is it, how, how come I keep sinning? Anyone? And I said, well, I said, have you ever seen a newborn baby? Is a newborn baby human? Are you sure? You're saying no? A newborn baby is not human? Yeah. And, and it, can a newborn baby get any more human than they are when they're born? Are you sure? They're completely human? Be careful. I am setting you up. Can a newborn baby do everything that a, that a grown human can do? Does the fact that they can't do that change their nature? So the fact that a newborn baby can't walk and talk doesn't mean it's less human. So the fact that a brand new, born of God, righteous, blood-bought Christian, baby Christian, can't perfectly walk like Christ doesn't mean they're not righteous. See, when you come to Christ, your flesh has grown up. Your, 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 your flesh, a lot of our flesh has been grown up. You have a mature flesh and a baby Christian. I'm trying to describe the conflict and the tension that everyone's been experiencing this past two days. This should be like a, this should relieve a lot of the tension. Okay? I didn't want to relieve it immediately because that wouldn't be any fun. And God does his work in the tension. So when you get born again, you're a baby Christian, and you have the brand new righteousness of Christ in you. You have his nature, you have his DNA, you have his likeness, but the Bible teaches in, four, in Ephesians 4.13 that we have to grow up and mature into his likeness. We don't just get born again, and now I'm a grown Christian. See, a grown, mature Christian can act, actually, you look at their life, and you're like, wow, they look like Jesus. This is why when you study the life of the apostles, you're like, they actually look like Jesus. True or no? 
can we argue that just simple men were doing things that only God could do? True or no? Paul gets shipwrecked on the island of Malta, whole island, healed. And you have to wrestle with the fact that it says, and he healed them. Paul healed them. I know, this I know this is triggering. But that's what God, he grows and matures us into him so that when people see us, they see his son. But when you're, when you're immature in your faith and you're a new Christian, guess what? You may still have some sin habits, some sin patterns, some stuff that you've always learned in your life. But the Bible teaches us in Romans 6.11 to consider yourself dead to sin, meaning you have to be willing to say, you know what, that's not who I am anymore. I may still be struggling, but I'm going to identify as a son, as a daughter of God, and the perfection that the Bible speaks of in Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 is the perfection of a perfect conscience. It's about your conscience. I'm going to show you. Is this helpful? Look at Hebrews 9. We're going to skip just some. Hebrews 8 outlines the new covenant. He's quoting, uh, he's quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. This is uh, verse 10, actually Hebrews 8, 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the nature of the new covenant. The law of God now is written on your heart, okay? And this is a really important distinction because in this day, um, people are preaching like a hyper, have you ever heard of like hyper grace? Have you all heard of that? Let me explain how that works. If you preach grace without preaching righteousness, if, if a believer still thinks they have an old nature and you're only preaching grace, that produces licentiousness. I'm gonna say it again. If I am, licentiousness is just a life given to sin, given to disobedience, okay? So if, if the grace of God is true, meaning, meaning where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and if I'm always going to be a sinner, but I'm also holding on to the abundance of grace, now all of a sudden I'm just maintaining this cycle of sinning and, and relying on the abundance of grace. That is anathema to the new covenant. Anathema means it's, it's terrible. It's no, it's wrong. So... So what's the right equation? The right equation is I get born again. I have the righteousness of Christ inside of me. I have the law of God written on my heart. And so now I don't need an external stone commandment to tell me what to do because his law has been written on my heart and my mind. The Holy Spirit now has wired me to seek God. Oh, you're wired to seek him. And so now you can be under grace. This is what I say. The righteousness of God inside of me will confine me to good behavior more than a system of law could ever do. So why does sin still have power in your life if you're righteous? 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Where does the power of sin come from in the believer's life? Where does it come from? Someone read it. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. 
Uh-oh. So you're saying the reason why I may still have sin in my life is because the law is actually empowering it. If you live with God based on a system of do's and don'ts, it will awaken and arouse sin inside of you. Romans 7 says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. What does that mean? 1 Timothy 1.9, the law is not laid down for the righteous. Why? Because the righteous know what to do. Even though they may be babies and they can mature into it, doesn't mean the righteous always does the right thing. Hear me. It doesn't mean they always do the right thing. God, God knows that we have to mature and that the actions of our flesh will be subdued as we align ourselves with the truth of who we are in him. Are you guys with me? So if you're still living towards God and you're drawing near to him based on a system of do's and don'ts, you will be sin conscious. Your conscience will always be defiled by sin. You'll be more aware of sin than you are of God. And if you're more aware of sin than you are of God, watch what happens. You will start to do things to, uh, to kind of like cleanse your own conscience from the sin. The way this looked like for me is when I, I, I shared about my struggle with pornography, I would usually wait about three days before I would go back and have a quiet time with God. Do you know why I would wait three days? Because I felt bad and I felt like I needed to let the dust settle. Do you know what the Bible says about that three-day period? It was a dead work that I was trying to do because of a defiled conscience. Sometimes I would try to read my Bible to kind of like, oh, I just need to read my Bible to get clean of this. That's a dead work. Why? Because I was trying to find cleanness by something that I did, even though reading my Bible is a right and good thing. I was trying to justify myself by what I did versus relying on the blood of Jesus to bring me near. Do you see this? If you don't understand this cycle and this pattern, and you live sin conscience, you will have a defiled conscience and your life, may, it may look like you're doing ministry, but it will be dead works. I don't do this to get right with God. If I never preached again, I would live under his smile. If I never talked to another girl, I would live under his smile. You know why? Because the blood does that for me. This is a privilege, this is a joy, this is wonderful, but this does not make me right with God. I can be right with God watching football with my family on Sunday, and I can be right with God in this pulpit. That's the freedom of a clear conscience, of a perfect conscience. And God wants you to have a perfect conscience. What does a perfect conscience mean? It means that at any time of any day, no matter what the circumstances, you know that you have a Father in heaven who loves you. That's what perfection looks like in the kingdom. Why? Why does that matter? Because if you have a perfect connection, a perfect conscience, you will be able to abide. You can't abide without a perfect conscience. And the only way you're going to bear fruit in the kingdom is by abiding. Peter, what's abiding? I'll tell you how God taught me. I'm like, Lord, that word frustrates me. It's dumb. I, tell, I talk to God that way when I'm reading the Bible because he likes it when I'm real and he teaches me that way. I read him like, I don't understand abide. You said, I'll abide in you, I'll bear much fruit. Abiding is frustrating. What do you mean abide? You know what he told me? He said, all it means is just stay where I put you. 
I said, where did you put me? He said, I put you in my son. I put you in the place of the full brunt of my affection and love. That's where I put you. That's what abiding means, is just stay there. So anything that tries to come into my connection with receiving God's great affection and love for me, I don't let it move me, because I know it's not from God. He intended, doesn't mean, how do I say this? There are times that circumstances or life will try to make my conscience question the love of God and make me feel guilty. But in those moments, I become to a crossroads and I go, what do I believe? Do I believe more how I'm feeling right now or do I believe more who Jesus is and what he's done and where God has put me in his son because the just shall live by faith, not by feelings. So Hebrews 9 I didn't forget about Hebrews. Oh my gosh, we're past the. Yeah, I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna go, and then we'll take a break. I'm gonna go. We're gonna take a break. I don't even know time. I know. Look, Hebrews nine. Hebrews nine. Hebrews nine. Hebrews nine. Verse. Verse eight. He's he's talking about the whole old the uh, the tabernacle. He says by this. Uh, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, meaning the old, uh, the old covenant arrangement of worship, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, here it is, perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So now we see biblically when he's talking about the law could never make anything perfect, he's talking about our conscience. So he's presenting this idea that we could actually have a perfect conscience before God. And that perfect conscience is connected to you and I understanding, seeing, understanding, and receiving the ministry of Jesus as our high priest. Do you see this? So they could never, the, the Levitical priesthood could never perfect the conscience of the worshipful, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations. But look at verse 11, but when Christ, say but when Christ, appeared as a high priest. Again, there's that phrase. When he appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. This is so bananas. Jesus entered into the true tabernacle in heaven with his own blood, not for himself, but so that we could come in. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. What's he saying? He goes, if that Old Testament could make you feel, ah, he's saying, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit who offered himself without blemish to God purify, perfect our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What does this mean? It means that your motive matters. Why you do something matters to God. Your conscience matters to God. Your conscience. 
If you're doing something because you're guilty, it's a dead work. If guilt and shame is your motivation, it doesn't register in heaven. I don't care how spiritual and biblical the activity is. Corinthians 13 says it in this way. If you, if you give all that you have to the poor but you have not love, it doesn't matter. Well, where does that love come from? It comes from abiding in God, abiding in love. So your motive matters. And I have found there is a pandemic in the church of defiled consciences. And this is at the root of all of the mental issues that we're battling, anxiety, depression, comparison, jealousy. It's at the core. What's happening? You have a defiled conscience. And so what happens? You become way more concerned about people and yourself than you do the smile of God. And you get frustrated when people talk about secret place and intimacy because you're like, man, I just don't know. I go to the secret place. I don't feel like God's there. Anyone? Talk to me. If that's you, you go into the secret place, you're like, ah, like, yeah, you have cool times, but like you want, you, you, you know there's deeper intimacy. Yes. You see, there is a place in God where you are so loved, you are so cherished by your father my my all my passion all of my all of my sweat all of the no breaks <laughs> like he's talking so fast he's saying so much it's because i want to thrust you into that place with your papa i i i this is my motivation you're like, why are you saying, why are you being so strong? I'm being, the things I'm being so strong on are the things that I know are crippling your intimacy with God. If you believe you're a sinner, it will cripple your intimacy. Cripple. It doesn't mean you can't know God as a savior and know him as a, well, he's just, he constantly keeps, God is so merciful. He's merciful when we wander. He's merciful when we run. He's merciful if we stumble. I love that. I love, the, I love that God meets us in weakness, but he also grows us up and matures us into him to where, like I said the other day, we can stand before God in the presence of God, not before men, not for men, not to get a message, not to get a sermon, but we can stand in the presence of our Father and we can enjoy belonging to God. This is the pinnacle of Christian experience. I'm telling you, you can see the dead rays, you can see movements on the earth. If you never learn to stand, to sit, to lie in the presence of your Father and to be completely satisfied. I'm talking about like it's home. It's, there's nothing higher. There's no, there's no, nothing can touch it. I, nothing and I'm I feel I feel the I feel the longing of the father for you I feel jealous for you I feel I feel I feel desperate for you I'm aware of this environment that you're in and it's possible to go through this and to not find that and if you go through this whole DTS and you get equipped and you get tools and you've got this big tool belt and all these amazing things, yet you never find the smile of your father, you'll just, 
life will be much harder than it needs to be. So I want you guys to know that. I want you to feel the, the longing of God. And I want you to understand my, my motive, my zeal, my passion, my, my intensity. It's really important that for, for me that you feel that from the Father. These things, I, I promise you, the, the things that we're talking about, they're, they're, if you don't deal with them like foxes, little thoughts, little beliefs, they become like foxes that spoil your vineyard. And this life is too short to not live under his smile, to abide in him. And the nature of the new covenant I've found is so, it's so big, it's so beautiful. Um, and it takes time to renew your mind to the fact that God would actually want to have this connection with us. I've personally found that. The reason why I spend all this time explaining is personally, as I've gained understanding into Jesus, it's deepened my intimacy with him. Some people view this that we're doing like so deep, and they're like, wow, this guy's really theological. This theology has caused me to live with rivers of living water. And if you don't have a value for renewing your mind to the truth, you'll be waiting for the ministry moment and you'll miss the ministry moment. Like, do you guys understand we could, we could right now, I could just come lay hands and you could, you could experience God through my river. John 7, rivers of living water will flow out of your inmost being. So I, I have a river. I want you to have a river. You getting wet from my river doesn't mean that you'll automatically have a river. <laughs> you see why I'm doing this? Like we can, we, and, and those moments are powerful. We need those moments for us to get whacked by God by other people's rivers. I'm so thankful for other people's rivers. I drink, if, I, if someone has a river of God, I'm like the first one to dip my cup in and like, let me have some. <laughs> I'm serious. I love it when people have God. I'm like, I'm God hungry. And I love how God comes out of people differently. I love seeing, I love looking at people. I'm like, even looking at you guys, I'm like, wow, God coming out of you, it's gonna be wild. Seriously, all beautiful, different ways God manifests, even through your expressions, your countenance. I'm looking around, it's amazing. This view is awesome. I'm seeing so many of you. I'm seeing in your countenance, I'm seeing Jesus coming out of you. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And he just wants to come out. He just wants to, to take over all of you. And this is all intentional. He, he does, he cleans our conscience, cleans the temple so that he can fill it with himself. Um, and so we want to do that. Um, I, I do want to mention a couple of things. Kevin came up and, and mentioned to me, and I want to just make a point. I want to honor his sense um, that, that when I'm talking about the law of God written on your heart, meaning there's not this external system of do's and don'ts to get right with God, I'm not, it doesn't mean we can set aside reading this. So if anyone was hearing that or um, just know, you guys know my heart, um, you, you need to read this. The fact that, again, this is in love, but the fact that so many hands were raised and you didn't have an understanding of the Le Levitical priesthood, um, 
all I would say is read the book of Genesis. Just start there. <laughs> just read the, how many of you have never read through the book of Genesis just through and through? There's no shame. Just raise your hand. You've never read through. Okay, so you need to read through the book of Genesis. That's a great way to start. Um, it's so rich. The, it's so full and it will provide so much context for what we've been talking about. Again, the whole, the whole Old Testament. But start in Genesis because that's where it all began. Amen?